You're listening to Denver Orbit, featuring voices. I'm going to give you an awkwardly long and uncomfortable list of reasons why you shouldn't shave outside. Stories. Now, he was very outspoken about the effects of, of war on himself. The music from Colorado's creative community. Listen at DenverOrbit.com or on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or most other podcast apps. The John of All Trades Podcast is a part of the Denver Podcast Network. In the shadow of the mountains, we speak. You have all made it to the You have all made it, made it, to you from the X Access. It's John of All Trades with your host. John X. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the John of All Trades podcast, episode 194. I'm your host, John X. Thank you for joining us. Glad to have you back once again. And on this week's show, I've got Anthony Piliacampo. What a great name. Very verbally satisfying to say. He is the co-founder and co-CEO of Modern Market. Now, if you live in Denver, as I do, you've probably been to one of their restaurants. There's one on the 16th Street Mall. Their corporate office was just catty corner from that. And I interviewed him there. Their food is terrific. It's healthy. It's fast. It's fresh. It's tremendous. I used to go there for lunch when I was working my corporate job downtown. And the salads are exceptional. The grain bowls, terrific. The pizzas, out of this world. And not to sound too much like a commercial, but when they reached out to me with the opportunity to talk to Anthony, I jumped at it because I knew the company. And I wanted to find out more about the brains behind this particular operation. And when I sat down with Anthony, I knew he was a guy I could exchange with pretty freely. He's got a lot of energy. He's got a lot of ideas. He's just a really dynamic personality. And there's a lot going on in this chat. It is a packed 45 minutes. We talk about the origin story of Modern Market, starting with one store in Boulder and how he thought he wasn't going to make it there. We talk about raising money. And what's interesting to me is after doing this show for nearly 200 episodes, some themes emerge again and again and again. And one of them is to give people the opportunity to say yes. When you're out fundraising at the height of the recession in 2008, and you say, I have this idea for a new restaurant and you should invest in it, you're going to hear a lot of no's. And I liken it to my time searching for a job after grad school. You're going to meet a lot of people and not many of them are going to hit, but you got to cast the net wide enough to where eventually one of them or a few of them or a bunch of them in the case of modern market are going to hit. And then you've got a chance to succeed. And that's a very exciting story. Another part of this story is they are disrupting sort of the restaurant industry. There's a need and you hear this culturally a lot that, you know, when I'm out and you know, maybe I'm at work or I'm on the road or whatever. I can't get like a good healthy option. So you end up defaulting to like burgers and fries and you just feel like death afterward. I'm on a big health kick right now. So this is near and dear to my heart. And he believes that by using fresh ingredients and providing people healthier options that the market will respond. And that is the important thing here because at the end of this episode, like I would call it the back third, we end up talking about capitalism and the good in the world that capitalism can do. And it's interesting to me to listen to because a lot of the cultural narrative you're hearing right now is about some of the bad actors in capitalism. You know, I think about what Alden Capital is doing to the Denver Post, which is just unconscionable. But capitalism in its purest form is ultimately a force for good in the world. And Anthony gives a full-throated, not defense because it's not really on trial here, but sort of a full-throated endorsement for it. And it was very interesting to hear that side of the coin. He's very optimistic about the future and his place in it, and where modern market fits in, and how we can ultimately evolve our culture in a positive direction. And man, if I'm doing one thing on this show, if I can leave you with that message, if I can leave you with that level of enthusiasm, man, I'm doing good work here. So it's a real thrill to sit down with Anthony Piliacampo, the co-founder and co-CEO of Modern Market. What a great episode. It's coming your way here just momentarily. Programming note, This is sort of the last regular episode for a little while. I mean, and that's not to say I'm going off to do some avant-garde, weird sort of art project with this show, but that is to say the Denver Film Festival is coming up. That's right. It's like my fourth year doing this, and I'm excited. 
I just had a call with my guy, Neil Trulio. You can hear him on a previous episode of this show where we talk about the ins and outs of the festival. And I'm actually going to talk to the festival organizer here coming up very, very soon. That's going to be part of a slate of shows all coming to you from the Denver Film Festival. I am an official podcast of the festival, and I'm thrilled to bring that content to you. Great guests. There's a great lineup of films coming up. So stay tuned to the John of All Trades website for programming updates there. That's J-O-N-of-all-trades.us. I'm sure I'll have a special tab for all the Denver Film Fest 41 episodes that are coming your way here very, very soon. Additionally, check me out on social media. That's where I tease all this stuff. You probably heard Anthony Piliacampo's first job, either on the website or on Facebook only. Facebook is the only place to hear the first job series. Those come out on Mondays. New episodes drop on Wednesdays. They're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or again, the homepage. Lots of great ways to stay in touch with the John of All Trades podcast. So make sure you're hitting us up on the social media platforms. Facebook is J-O-A-T pod, as are the other platforms. Twitter, Snapchat, Pinterest, and Instagram, all J-O-A-T pod. Now, episode 194 features Anthony Piliacampo the co-founder and co-CEO of Modern Market. They have 29 stores in five states. This is an enthusiastic, fun, brisk-moving chat. I know you're going to love it, and it starts right now. It was the Colorado burrito with green chicken chili and potatoes and cheese and eggs. That sounds like a boss breakfast. It was amazing. Is that one of your specialties? Uh, we just started doing burritos about six months ago. Okay. Um, so it's relatively new for us, but it's the thing I eat every day now pretty much. <laughs> Crowded space, uh, breakfast burrito business. Uh, you know, I guess it is. It's more of just, you know, we think of it, we don't really pay as much attention to what the space looks like and think about it more of what we want to eat. And, right. You know, what do we put in our restaurant that we... You know, if we fair, if we want to eat it every day, other people probably do too. So it's kind of how we drift into things like burritos. I think that's probably a pretty good philosophy. Do you pick that up from your shop, just catty corner from here? I do. Okay. Yep. Is that because we're in your corporate office? Is that kind of your flagship store? I, I wouldn't say it's a flagship store. It just happens to be the store. Our, uh, you know, this is our restaurant support center, and so our, you know, all the people that work out of here eat in that store a lot because it's across the street, sure. and we all get a great discount. So, um, <laughs> you know, I think it gets more of our traffic. Than any other store, right? How how early does that open? Seven a.m. Okay, seven, perfect. Uh, so this is Anthony Piliacampo, and you helped me with that pronunciation. That's got to be good to hear it into a mic correctly. It is, it is. yeah. No, it sounds it sounds great when somebody says it correctly, <laughs> which doesn't often happen. Well, you prompted me, which is helpful, and you are the founder of Modern Market. Co-founder, and, technically. Co-founder. Yeah. Okay, who's your co-founder? Uh, a friend of mine, Rob McColgan. Okay, is he still part of this? He is. He is. We're co-CEOs. Okay. He, um, nice. we were best friends in high school, actually, and uh, we started it together. Wow. Okay. How long ago was that? Roughly ten years ago was when we started working together on it. We both were doing other things. He actually was working on Wall Street, and um, I had another company. I'm an engineer by training. And what kind um, of engineer? Uh, mechanical engineer. All right. And. He, I had sold that company, and I'd had this idea for a few years, and he was the only person I knew that when I told him the idea, I didn't think I was crazy, <laughs> and um, we had always wanted to do something together, and he's the smartest person I know, so I figured even though neither one of us had worked in a restaurant, sure. at least if my partner was smarter than I was, it would uh, behoove us to, you know, or move us towards success, I guess you could Well, say. you're describing my philosophy for getting married. You, know, <laughs> you, you got to marry someone smarter than you, right? It's true. And Always surround yourself with smarter people. <laughs> they drag you up. And what's amazing is she feels the same way. And I go, someone is wrong in this equation, presumably. But, uh, you know, it's all in the eye of the beholder, right? Exactly. So, okay. So you're a mechanical engineer by trade. Is that what your degree is in, your background? It is. Yeah, okay. My degree is in mechanical engineering and um, product design. And so I worked for – I started my career with a, at a consulting firm called IDEO. That's, I always say they're the McKinsey of innovation. So mm. they're the company that Microsoft, Procter & Gamble – PepsiCo, companies like that hire IDEO to invent what's next for them. <laughs> and um, it was a great experience for me because I got to see lots of projects on where the puck was going in a lot mm -hmm. of industries. And, you know, I was really passionate about health and wellness and worked a lot on health-related projects within IDEO. And so that really the, – the core of what Modern Market is today – I really came out of my experiences working for various companies in a, you know around health and wellness and food. Okay. 
because I've eaten in your shops a number of times. I used to work down here. I was at like 16th and Court. Sure. So it's a short bus ride. And when that, you described that McDonald's before we were on mic, there was a McDonald's there. And I remember they always used to play classical music outside. They did. <laughs> Which, uh, it was a much different corner back then than sure. it is now. When did that shop go in? Was that, how many years ago was that? Uh, that was close to four years ago now. Okay. And that's, wow, okay, so that's right about the time I was leaving. That I remember that now because it went in and I go, oh, cool, there's another good place to eat, like on the mall, like a healthy place where I can get something good, which is not always the easiest thing to find. Yep. Some, something that's going to not blow up your day and, you know, where you're sitting <laughs> in your office and you're like, okay, I need a nap now. From- I mean, you, you essentially just described our whole... I guess reason for being, okay. you know, and that you know, I just I, what you just described. I think is the problem that everybody faces all the time. Whereas you know, modern life I think forces you to dine out constantly. Yeah. Like if you're a busy working professional, you, you'd love to cook all the time and you can't. You'd love to pack your lunch every day for work and you can't. Sure. Um, you travel. I used to travel a lot for work, and I always said that no one has. No one ever has come back from a business trip and been like, God, I feel great. I ate such amazing food in that airport and on that trip. Like, man, you know, that, that's never happened. Yeah. And, you know, I just – you look at something like that and to me it just screams of an opportunity because sure. we're all eating all the time yet everybody has the reaction that you talked about, which is that, yeah, you know, I, I go out to lunch with my coworkers and I come back and I'm just like head on the desk ready to die for the rest of the afternoon. Sure. And it's like, you know – you eat a giant burger at noon. Yes, you're going to feel terrible at two. You drink a soda at noon. You're going to feel terrible at noon. Like that's, you know, everybody knows that. But if you don't have any other option, you know, what do you do? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the nice thing is it's really, and I'm not trying to do like a commercial for you guys here, but it's, it's really sort of like the, the interface there is just different. You know, you're not necessarily sitting down waiting on service. Whereas, you know, a lot of the places on the mall, you're, you're sitting down and it's really, sort of time intensive. Sure. Whereas modern market is, it's much more sort of like grab and go in a lot of ways, but it's good and it's healthy and it's nourishing and you go, okay, I actually feel like I'm ready to tackle the rest of my day. You know, we always, we always like to say it's food that moves you forward. And so, you know, I always feel like food, typically dining out food holds everybody back. So Mm. if you look at the industry at large, it's built on indulgence and craving satiation, right? Right. And Usually checking those boxes means that it's going to hold you back. It's going to make you feel bad. It's going to change Mm. your health in a negative way. It's going to lower your energy. We're the other side of that coin. We're the food that propels you forward. So, you know, I always say that if the, if you, the typical restaurant does what you describe, it makes you get back to your desk and not feel that great. We want to have the opposite effect where we fit into your life in this really positive way. We meet you wherever you're at and then we help like, catapult you forward with like energy and enthusiasm and happiness and you know that that is not the typical restaurant mo (laughs) no i would say it isn't but one thing i'm curious about is you mentioned you'd always wanted to do something like this but coming out of engineering and then going into you know being a restaurateur that's a pretty hard pivot and one that not everyone can make because to me they seem like very different skill sets first of all are they in fact different skill sets and secondly uh are they not I think it sounds – when you tell the story, it sounds much more of a departure than it actually is. Yeah, like in the abstract. Right. I think in the reality of it is I had run businesses previous to this, so I knew how to run a business. And, okay. You know, I'd say that 85% of business is the same whether you're running a consulting firm, a product – you're launching and you know, building your own products, you're running restaurants. Like 85% of it's the same. Um, <laughs> the 15% that's different, I think a lot of it just comes down to – do you have an idea that appeals to whatever market you're targeting? And are you creative enough to figure out how to adapt to keep, you know, tightening your offering to, to satisfy that market? And so for me, that's what I always did. You know, I was in a, I was in a role where we were creating products, you know, for users. And at the end of the day, modern market as a restaurant is a product, um, very complicated one, but it's a product. You know, we're trying to create amazing food that moves you forward, do it in a, in a time format. That's pretty fast and do it at a cost that is reasonable for what you get. Our mm. food isn't cheap, but it's as low price as it can be if you have a quality standard you're not willing to deviate on. Okay. And so that's how we've always pitched a business. And that, that's actually a really complicated engineering challenge and that it's one where, you know, my partner and I spent a lot of time and really the last 10 years honing over time, mm. you know, saying it's just 
we had those goals and you just keep tweaking the offering. So it really has been a constant engineering project in a lot mm. of ways. I, I will say that my work has never felt very different. So, you know, the okay. everything that I've done in my whole career has always had a problem solving bent and this is no different. Um, mm. It's just, we're solving it within the four walls of restaurants. Whereas in previous businesses, I might've been doing it, you know, as a consultant for another client um, for their four walls of their business. Or when we were launching and designing products, we were, creating those and then we'd get them made and then you sell them and you you know again you're just solving a different kind of user need so it hasn't felt that different to me <laughs> okay you mentioned that you had started businesses before i mean when you were talking about working in ido that strikes me as sort of being a uh, a cog and an important cog in a big company mm-hmm. but what other kinds of businesses had you started um so i started an online handbag company with my sister at one point <laughs> where we uh, called freddie and ma where we uh, customers could go onto a website and custom design a bag, and then it would get made and shipped to them. I'd say we were 10 years too early. In, uh, when was the, this? Uh, this was in 2004. Um, okay. Ish. And so I think if we had started it today, it would probably be a little more successful than it was. That, that yeah. ended up being a failure in the end and did not work. <laughs> um, I started a company called Venture Design Works that was a combination of design consulting, so similar to what I did at IDEO, just for smaller companies. Hmm. Um, and that was half the business, and the other half was – we designed, marketed, and sold products for the outdoor retail industry. So mm. I was really into climbing, skiing, biking, et cetera, and we sold a variety, designed and built a variety of products for that industry. Um, and um, you know, we had, we enjoyed. It, you know, it wasn't a home run success by any means, but I learned a lot about running businesses, and we ended up being able to sell it, and you know, walked away with more money than we started with. Um, wow! And the effort was that, worth it, dude. So, that's a success. So that, yeah, that that for my partner and I at the time, that seemed like a great success, and you know that. That both those businesses actually taught me a lot about just running businesses, um, and so then when modern, you know, when I had this idea for modern market, I knew what I was getting into, you know, from an entrepreneurial perspective, and it really was we had to learn how to run restaurants because we had never done that before. Sure. But, um, yeah, we, we went in eyes wide open, I guess, and uh, it was an interesting journey. My parents started a restaurant when I was like five or six, and they they started it with four. It was four couples. And they are no longer friends with two of those couples, right? Because running a restaurant is an, is kind of an entirely different ball of wax. I mean, I've read uh, Kitchen Confidential. Have you read sure. that? Yep. I mean, most people have. It's one of Bourdain's, like, it's what put them on the map. Yep. And restaurant people, in a lot of ways, are different. So I think that's one of the reasons, knowing what I know about what my parents went through, and then knowing that you were an engineer by trade and wanted to get into restaurants, that's why it strikes me as such a departure. Because... Being a restaurateur, I also talked to Jason Calloway, who started Rooster and Moon over in the Golden Triangle. Really great, cool coffee shop. And he told me about the challenges of getting his menu dialed in, figuring out who his audience was, et cetera, et cetera. What were the specifics about running a restaurant that were difficult to learn or challenges that you experienced? I think the biggest challenge is that a restaurant never has a breather. You know, you mm. when you're open for business, every transaction matters. Whereas, you know, when you're doing design consulting, you might get a large project that consumes you for three or four months. And then, you know, when that finishes, you may have a month and a half till your next project or something like that. So you, right. you're, you're not always on. Whereas with the restaurant, if the doors are open and you're serving guests, you have to do everything right. Um, and, you know, the third guest that comes in doesn't care if your water heater went out. They don't care if someone didn't show up for the shift and you're short-staffed. You have to figure out how to adapt, and you have to do that all day, every day, <laughs> all year, forever. And I think that's when people say restaurants are hard. To me, that's what is meant. And I didn't appreciate that early on. Um, it took a few years, actually, for that to sink in. But especially as you get multiple restaurants. I mean, we've got restaurants in five states. And you know, I'm asleep sometimes, and there's transactions happening you know, across the country in restaurants that I'm not standing in. Yeah. Um, and you know, how do you ensure that every guest has that experience that we as, you know, the folks who run it imagine that they're having? You know, we have a very specific notion of what the modern market experience should be, what the food should be like, what the um, environment should be like, service should be like, et cetera. But you have to duplicate that every guest. And, you know, we make money $10 at a time. Right. And, you know, when you start talking about making millions of dollars a year, $10 at a time, you, you, you just have so many more points of failure. Whereas yeah. if you're making money $100,000 at a time, you know, you don't, you don't have quite as many individual points of failure. Whereas we, 
in bad news, I, I heard this going in, and it is so true. Bad news travels ten times further than good news. Yeah. You know, if you go into a restaurant and it meets your expectations, you either don't tell anybody or you might mention it to one person. If you go into a restaurant and they were, you yeah, know, surly, the food was bad, whatever, you will tell everybody you know. And that even even if Yelp didn't exist, you would do that. And uh, you know, I think that again, it kind of plays into this idea that restaurants are hard. Mm. I think it's more that they're just constant and a constant right. grind is not what I think most people are programmed for. Right. Um, and so that, that definitely makes the business, you know, in air quotes, harder um, than probably some other businesses. Are you wired for that? Yeah. I, uh, I, I think you have to have the kind of you – know, you have to be a very optimistic person, <laughs> and you have to really believe that the future is going to be better than the present. Um, <laughs> if you do that, I think the grind is worthwhile. And also, I mean, both my partner and I, you know, we – we don't mind the constant evolution of things. Mm. And, you know, part of grinding that I like is that you get this continual opportunity to make yourself better. Mm. And that's one of the really neat things about the business is that we can decide on changing something and fairly rapidly we can test it in the real world with our guests and you can see a relatively fast response. Whereas if you're shipping products, there might be a year and a half lag between your idea and it actually hitting a shelf seeing how people respond to it, then tweaking it again. We can roll out a new menu item, and within a day, we have thousands of data points on it. Wow. And then we can make a tweak almost immediately. So there's this iterative process. The grind actually allows for an iteration cycle that's really quick. And I think that appeals to me you know, at a very high level. And you know, at the end of the day, I, I like serving people. And I like you – know, I'm not a – I can't draw you a picture. I can't paint something that looks cool. But I love art, and yeah. I think the thing that's neat about service businesses like restaurants, they're very visible in a community, and they have impact people's life. And my goal is to make something that – you know, my, I guess, definition of art is something you put out in the world that makes a positive impact on other people. And Modern Market, at the end of the day, while it is a grind, it's our art. You know, yeah. That's what we're putting into a world. I mean this block on 16th Street, I'm very proud that I feel like we transformed – how a block felt. I mean, just the health of the people that work within, you know, a bus stop away from this. Sure. I think we actually made a positive improvement on. And to me, that's just as much art as the public art installations that are on the mall further up. And I really well, there's like. A, there's a smiley face between the two buildings. That's here. the one I was thinking yeah, of in yeah. my head. You know, and that that those are both, I think, versions of the same thing. And you know, right. if you talk to any artist, I think they will all admit to art generally being a grind. Right? It's just it's an iterative process, and you never know. You're never done. You know, it's yeah. like you're just constantly grinding away at it. And that's, I think that's maybe the artist's struggle, so to speak. And I think you can experience that even if you're not painting a picture or building a sculpture. And, you know, we experience it through the restaurants. Well, I, I think what you said is my friend J.D. Lopez hosts a podcast called Left Hand, Right Brain. And he asks people, he just puts them on the spot. He's got this very Socratic method of interviewing people. And he'll just ask them point blank, are you an artist? And you would have fit in right perfectly on that show. Because, yes, you are, especially when you're dealing with something that uh, people are eating and consuming. I still think about – I brought up Rooster and Moon. I still think about one of the salad dressings that they made. That restaurant hasn't existed for, I think, like two years now. Yet I still think about that salad dressing constantly. Like I would think about – I don't know. We were talking about that Matt Damon podcast. Like I'd think about the movie Rounders, right? I mean it's it was it was such a beautiful like art project. It was the strawberry avocado vinaigrette. And I'm like, God, like I wish that still existed. So the fact that you consider this art is kind of a thing of beauty and it's where art meets science. So you described doing you know millions of dollars of revenue ten dollars at a time. I started thinking about the Facebook movie. There's not the the photo of the guy with, you know, fourteen trout that he's caught. He you know, it's the three thousand pound Marlin, right? You're standing in front of a photo with like 400,000 trout, right? Sure. I mean, that is sort of how you are building up this business. And I'm kind of all over the place here because you gave me a lot to unpack, which was awesome. And I was thinking when you have restaurants in five states, mm-hmm. what you're describing is kind of an interesting engineering problem because you've got this aesthetic, you've got what you think mod market is and what you want it to be and what you want the customer experience to be, you need to translate to, to people who otherwise are not living in your head 
and they need to then enact that vision in your absence. Is that kind of a strange concept? Um, it's not strange at all because it's our reality every well, day. Well, no, of course. <laughs> but I mean, in the abstract, approaching it. Yeah. When you're, because to me, I started my business, I never wanted to have any employees. Like, I never wanted to manage people. I, I didn't have sort of, I just have this quiet little consulting practice that I do, and I'm really proud of the work that I do, and I think it's great. But I never had visions of expanding it. So the idea of expanding sort of what's in my head, putting it in other people's heads, and having them enact it in my absence is mind-blowing to me. But you've made it work. And how do you get someone from maybe they know Modern Market, maybe they've eaten there a couple of times, and they apply for a job with you or you go out and recruit them. You go, sure. you have these skill sets. How do you instill this vision in them to get Mod Market what you want it to be in places where you are not? Right. You know, I think that what you just described, I think, could be a commercial for why culture matters. Mm. And, you know, the only way you scale a business like this is by having a culture that is bigger than the training materials, et cetera. So, you know, if all you have is a series of documents that kind of show you the rote steps for how you do everything, right. I think that it's very difficult to do what we do because there is a, you know, to make the food that we make and make everything from scratch, we, ha which we really do, I'd say there's very few restaurants. I've never seen another restaurant in our category that makes as much from scratch as we do. Mm. Um, and, the good to that is when you do it right, people get this amazing food that they remember forever. The problem is the you're relying on a team member to execute it perfectly and to pay attention to some little details that can wiggle around because, I mean, as everybody knows, apples don't always taste the same. Right. And so if you have apple, let's say, on something, you have to make the judgment calls the person making it on. Is this apple good, bad, otherwise, right? And, and so we put a lot of um, complicated judgment into the hands of our team members. And so the only way we can tell them this is how you do it, but the only way we get them to kind of make the right choice in the end supports the brand is to have this culture. And, you know, we our culture really is about building this food that moves people forward. And what we try and do across markets is hire leadership, you know, throughout the company that embodies this and has the same passion that Rob and I always had around the business. I think that's the key too is you find people that share this passion for creating this art delivering this food to as many people as possible. And those people attract other people who believe in that mission too. Right. And then that that becomes the differentiator for the brand. And you know, our rate of growth is a function of our rate of attracting and developing those types of people. So okay. I'd love to say we could open a hundred units next year. Um, you know, it's great to just say those types of things. But <laughs> the reality is I don't have a hundred people waiting in the wings to run those restaurants be leaders in those restaurants um on that time schedule that will be representative of the quality that you want absolutely because again it's not as simple as just saying oh they have restaurant experience and they can execute the rote steps you know to do right. what we do there has to be this passion and that you there's a beauty element you know there's an aesthetic element when you're making a pizza our pizza specifically where there's you know how do you train somebody on just the right amount of char to yeah. go on the crust of a brick oven pizza. There's That's not, more art than science. It is. There, it's a very qualitative – it's a measure. qualitative feature or measure of the product. It's not a quantitative one. And we live in a world filled with these qualitative measures. And so we solve wow. that by trying to attract people who have the same passion that we do. And then that feeds into this culture of we. every ingredient matters. Every little detail matters. And – then that's what you actually end up trying to instill in new team members is, you know, it's less about, it's like, yeah, you go through the steps and this is how you make the pizza, but then you get them eating the food all the time. You get them as obsessed with it as we are. Mm. And then that creates this culture internally with the company where all this stuff matters. Right. And then once you have that, there's actually less that, you know, Rob or I have to do as leaders of the company. The, the leaders in the stores actually take care of that for us. Wow. And so that's the beacon on the hill. That's where you're trying to get. And, you know, you know, again, you try and create this culture that honestly is significant. That, that has to be – the culture has to be the strongest part of the overall company hmm. because you can't pass this knowledge on with just a PowerPoint deck or a three-ring binder. Like it's just it, – <laughs> you know, it, it's just not that kind of food. No, no, it certainly isn't. How many stores do you have now? Uh, twenty. We opened the 29th one this week. Okay, and in five states? How, uh, which states? Uh, so we're in Colorado, Texas, Arizona – Maryland and Washington, D.C. Okay. Take me back to 
I mean, 29 stores in five states, that is remarkable. And uh, particularly in the restaurant industry and a, a competitive one such as this. I mean, you, you are – would you say most of your stuff is breakfast and lunch? Uh, no, we're – we're pretty evenly split between lunch and dinner, and then breakfast is significantly smaller. Than oh, really? Lunch. Yep. Okay. Um, I just figured, like in the in this urban area, in a, you know, serving all these office buildings and stuff. This this store, I would say, is more lunch heavy doing okay. urban. But you know, the re- the sales are definitely a function of the environment. So if you're in a suburban oh, sure. yeah, area, yeah. you'll do more on nights and weekends. Okay, that makes sense. Um, take me back. What was your first store? So the first store was in Boulder, Colorado. Okay. Uh, is that where you're living or where you were um, living? It, it is where I was living at the time, and I currently do still reside there. We were actually trying to find a location in Denver because mm-hmm. my um, business partner lived um, closer to Denver. But that just happened to be the real estate that kind of yeah. checked our boxes, and uh, that's where we started. Okay. How long from idea to getting that first store open? Like you're open for business. How long was that runway? So it took – took about a year and a half from Rob and I deciding, yes, we're definitely going to do this, to raise money for the first store because we didn't have the money to do it. Um, How would you raise money? <laughs> beg, borrowing, and stealing. Oh, really? Um, I mean, it was – we started raising money right before the economy collapsed in 2008. Oh, no. <laughs> and so you know, when, in, when the economy is having the worst correction in 100 years – and two people who've never worked in a restaurant are saying, we've got an idea for the next Chipotle. Give us some money. Yeah. It's, it, I, I wouldn't say it's the stickiest pitch people have ever heard. Um, and so it took us significantly longer to raise the money than we thought. Um, but sure. we did. We, we got it raised. And then – Was this through like friends and acquaintances or like was this like most, lines of credit, that kind of thing? No. It was mostly through coworkers and then net mining their network. So okay. we, we had a list – that had the economy not collapsed of coworkers, we probably could have raised the money from without going further. But we didn't get very far with that list because everybody had lost a bunch of money. So, so. You're, you're making your money here currently, $10 at a time. You're raising money at this point. What, hundreds of dollars at a time? Thousands of dollars at a time? Tens of thousands at a time? I think the... I think yeah, tens of thousands of dollars at a time. Okay. So you know, I think originally we went out trying to raise it hundreds of thousands of dollars at a time, <laughs> sure. and um, we didn't get very far with that pitch. Okay. I think that. It eventually got to the point where we knew exactly what it would cost to build the one lo- one location, and we said that's like the line, that's the bar we have to clear. Mm-hmm. And you know, we'd take a meeting with somebody, they would say no, um, which was extremely common, and we would say that's great, you don't want to do it. Do you know anybody else who might? And it was stunning how many people would say, no, you know, I don't really invest in this sort of thing, but you know, my friend, whomever, he does or she does, and we call them and i mean these were like fourth degree of separation meetings and you know you just go in and you make your pitch and you know i think we were we had done a lot of research and i think we had a very compelling story um and we both were had been relatively successful in our previous jobs and i I think for the most part people believed we'd give it a good try and but raising money is hard i mean and, and now it's funny looking back on it now when I think what we were, what the ask was of people, I, honestly, I'm surprised as many people gave us money as did because you know it really when you really think about it, you know, and the pitch that we were making it doesn't sound like a surefire success sure. by any definition, you know, by any means. And um, but you know we you just keep asking, and if you, know, if you ask enough people, you can do it. You get there, yeah. And, and again, I think most people give up quite easily on these things. And you know, I, I, I love the people that say, oh, we had like a hundred no's before. You know, we got it done, and I just laughed that anybody would ever. It, to me, if you were counting them, you were doing the you were in the wrong business. Like you have to be so thick skinned that yeah. you don't even notice the nose, right? Like we, we weren't counting them. It was I, I I have no idea how many people said no because we were pitching it to everybody who would talk to us. Well, it reminds me of when I was trying to get a job after grad school, because the the goal of my meeting was not for them to offer me a job; it was for them to introduce me to someone else, right? Uh, if, and if that came about, it's like, Hey, here's who I am. Here's what my skill set is. Here's what I bring to the table. If you're interested in that, great, but help me chain out this network. Because if I get it, if I get the webcast far enough, so at some point it's going to hit and it did. And so I was meeting people again, like third and fourth degree of separation. So it's amazing to me that that skill set is applied in sort of a different context and a different milieu because the muscles are exactly the same. Exactly. You've just got to be relentless 
go out there, like talk to as many people. I, I always say this, and people are blown away by this. Give someone a chance to say yes, right? And I do that all the time on this show. Like sometimes I'm pitching guests of prominence, you know, they're being interviewed by GQ or, you know, the New York Times or whatever. And here comes little old me. I give them a shot to say yes. And sometimes they do. And sometimes that freaks me out too, because all of a sudden, oh crap, now I have to do it. <laughs> right. Um, and that's, that's pretty frightening, but you got it across the finish line. You open the doors. Uh, how was the response right away? Uh, I would say significantly lower than what we had planned. Um, or maybe hoped. Yeah, there was, there were a few things financially that we had not anticipated. And so about a month in, we realized we didn't have enough money in the bank to make the next payroll. Oh, no. Um, and so we were operating every day. We were getting food out. You know, guest response was good. Um, the sales weren't where we thought they would be. And, uh, Rob and I, kind of sat down and said, well, we have to stop paying ourselves. We actually got one paycheck early on. And I think, I don't think we got another one for about two and a half more years, three years. But, um, we said, we're going to stop paying ourselves because we can't afford to do that. And we had enough money basically to make one more turn of payroll. And then we said, we're done. Like we don't, you know, we have, we have to get money from somewhere. So How long was this into it? This was a month in. A month, A Yikes. month after opening the door. Oh, and so no. we didn't want to go back to our investors and say, hey, a month in, we've miscalculated completely. <laughs> Um, so we each loaned the company really our last $10,000 we each had. We'd kind of, you know, we'd put money into the thing, but we kind of had a little buffer mm-hmm. and we took the whole buffer and, you know, went all in and we kind of committed that we had to be able to pay ourselves back within six months. And we said, if we can do that, this thing has legs. If we can't, you know, we're going to have to fi- figure out something else to yeah. do. And so I think that was a great inflection point because it forced us to, make a lot of hard decisions early on. And it actually forced us to get even deeper involved into the into the business than we kind of had been in the first month. I mean, it, it really set up, I think, the future success because there was no safety net at that point. Like we had yeah. to make it work. And we did. And, you know, we, we pretty rapidly, we had a few lucky breaks um, with a variety of things. But I would say luck is a function of being there to receive it. Sure. And, you know, we were still open. So, you know, a couple of these breaks went our way. Sales steadily increased and we started running the business, I think, better. We took about three months to really just figure out how to run a restaurant. Mm. And because we had never done that, um, you know, it was a pretty steep curve, but we figured it out. And once we had that figured out, it became exponentially easier. And, you know, we had some great people on our team too early on that were, um, I think, very helpful and instrumental in us figuring it out. Well, and they're kind of taking a leap of faith with you. Oh, absolutely. I um, mean, every every team member from early on. You know, I think the great thing about Modern Market is everybody gets that the world needs, or the U.S. specifically, needs higher quality, healthier food. Like, I've yet to tell anybody that where somebody's like, oh, yeah, that's true. Like, And so <laughs> I think even from a team member standpoint, if you've worked in the restaurant industry at all, you know how horrible most of the things that are put out for folks are food-wise. And so we've always done things the right way from a food perspective. And I think it made it not difficult to attract great team members. And, you know, they were – Rob and I, I think one thing that we are pretty good at is we don't really need to be the person that came up with the idea. We're an idea meritocracy. So when there's a good idea – we don't care where it came from. We'll, <laughs> right. we'll go all in on it. Yeah, and there's think, no like misplaced pride of authorship. No, oh my gosh, no, no, no. I don't care who gets the credit. Like yeah. I, I just want to win. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> totally. like, I need this business to succeed and pay my mortgage. So the, you know, for us, I think we were very good at listening to all these great people that worked for us that had worked in other restaurants. And you know, when when you got a hourly, um, you know, salad cook telling you. You know, I've worked in restaurants for 10 years. And I've never seen anybody do it like this. And this is horrible to do it this way. That caused <laughs> you to be like, okay, tell us how you might do it. Yeah. And you know, then we use that as a jumping off point to evolve our operations and sure. what we're doing. Well, what you're describing is this was presented to me by someone I look at as a real inspiration. It's a guy named Josh Penry who I've done a number of work for. And he always asks, what is the preferable of the seven deadly sins? Is it pride or is it greed? And at the end of the day, for me, it's greed. Like I don't need the credit. Sure. I don't need the. I, I, I don't need the adulation. I don't need any of that. I just want to win. Right. And at, at the end of the day, I mean, where we live here in the United States, the bottom line is kind of what you're keeping your eye on. And as long as that's growing and moving in the right direction, that's a function of greed. For you know, to use sort of a crass term, but uh, I think the lesson really applies there. You so. know, I, I tell people all the time that I love the mission of what we're doing. 
But the mission is not successful unless we make a return for our investors. Sure, yeah. And the reason why burgers and fries and sugary water dominate the landscape is those created a great return for their investors. And our mm. job and our mission is to figure out how do you make a similar or better, hopefully, return doing something that people actually need. Yeah. Just like if you're making electric cars, you better be able to make them in a way that is as profitable for the person making it as gas cars, or you're going to lose the war, right? You might right. win the battle, but you lose the war. And you know, I think, to me, that's why Better For You has never really become prominent in the United States is because nobody put in the effort to figure out how do you make this as attractive to capital – uh, because, mm. you know, capital is agnostic. It doesn't care what you're doing in the end over a long enough horizon. Maybe in a short term, people right. are like, oh, I'm going to invest in healthy. They'll do that for five years until they lost all their money. And they're like, to heck with this. I'm going to go back to burgers and fries because I made money there. Sure. And so, you know, what we have to figure out is how do we make a return for our investors? Because if we do that while doing good, that's truly winning in my book, and you know that makes us successful, and that allows us to actually change the world around us. Well, you're talking about a concept I've heard before, which is like the triple bottom line, right? You're, you're doing good for your investors, you're doing good for society, and you're doing good for your employees, right? Yep. I mean, those those are the three bottom lines. And, and, and I will say, though, the, the reason I don't like the triple bottom line definition is because it implies that the financial bottom line isn't the most important. Hmm. But I, I feel like the other two, the, the, we'll call them the do-good bottom lines, right. those have to be baked into your business and you have to do those. But you can't do those two and not do the other. Like no yeah, matter – you have to hit the profitable one or you won't be around long term. And you can't – I think it's silly for some of these And then the other two are irrelevant. Right. And some of these businesses pretend that like, oh, we can operate at a loss forever because we're doing good. It's like, <laughs> no, at that point you're a charity. Right. right. Until you get to the point where you're generating enough cash, you can grow under your own power. You're a charity. Right. That's what it is. And it's not, it won't be around 30 years from now. Sure. And so, you know, I always look at it as, you know, capitalism works and capitalism can solve most of the world's problems. But you have to have, I think, founders and, uh, you know, people starting the companies that, have the value system to put these good things in place. And, you know, we're not willing to compromise on it. And we work incredibly hard to kind of satisfy all these three things. But at the end of the day, I tell our investors, when we raise money, we're a business. Yeah. We're going to, our job is to make you a return, yeah. period, end, stop. You know, if we do it while doing great for the world, like, that's yeah, awesome. Everybody wins, but the investors don't care. They <laughs> pretend like they do, but in the end, they're right. capitalists. You know, they can, they, they have a big pot of money and they can give some to us, they can give it to a tech company, they can give it to whomever. And they're just trying to make money with their money. Well, and we can certainly cast a value judgment on that if we want to, but, you know, that is the business that you're in and you recognize the realities of it. And I think that by accepting that, it forces us as managers of the business to get really creative and work really hard on solving the problem we want to solve the way we want to solve it. Because mm. in the end, if you're willing to do the harder work to do that, the money's there. Right. Right? Like if you're <laughs> making a great return, they'll give you as – there's as much money in the world as you want. Sure. Like it's, it's, it literally is a limitless pot if you can create a return on it. And so that is the opportunity with what we're doing. If we can create the return while doing the great things – that's how you actually move the needle and change the world. Yeah, that's a, that's a fascinating way of looking at it. And uh, I would call it something of an inversion from a lot of the cultural narrative around it these days. Oh, absolutely. There's this, there's this, you know, I always laugh when people vilify large companies mm -hmm. because, I mean, a great, great example just in the last week, McDonald's announced removing artificial ingredients from uh, the Big Mac, or I'm sorry, the Quarter Pounder. And <laughs> the McDonald's making that change has more lasting impact than the sum of every small healthy restaurant whatever's chains you know choices in the last right. 10 years like you know that one change by McDonald's just like when Walmart said we're not serving milk that has i think it's the RBH hormone RHB or RBH hormone in it mm. that ceased to exist in the industry right right like just snap your fingers it's gone and you know i think that's the large companies actually the larger you are the more impact you can actually make mm. and you know, the at the end of the day, charity does not solve the structural problems that we face. I mean, yeah, the just, systemic problems. Yeah, there's and capitalism does. I mean, mm. it just it's that's the that's the operating system of the world we're in. Pretending that that's going to change, I think, is a fool's errand. None of us live <laughs> long enough to say that oh, we're going to change that whole system. But what I think you can do 
is like anything. You can look at the system and the rules of the game and say, all right, how do I play this game to achieve the ends that I want to see? And, you know, for right. us, it's a more sustainable, healthier food supply. I think you can do it within this system. And I think the great thing is the larger we get, the more things we displace. And mm. it's all about displacement. It's that if there's a bad option you don't like that exists, find a way to displace it. If you don't like coal power plants, find a way to displace them with something that's more economically viable. And don't, you know, right. when somebody says, well, it's not more, well, well coal is more economically viable. Great. Figure out a way to make the other thing economically not viable. Not anymore. Right. Natural gas is much more economically viable. And as a result of that, our air quality has improved. Absolutely. So, I mean, yeah, you're right. The market largely solved that problem. I think of this – there's this weird stat that I saw. Remember the Kyoto Protocols in like 1992? Mm -hmm. The U.S. famously did not sign on to that as they have not for the Paris Accords. Yet we were the only country that met its emissions targets. Sure. And it wasn't through dr draconian sort of uh, mandates and acts of government. It was the market. Like we have a ton of natural gas. Someone unlocked a way to get it out of the ground. As a result – Natural gas started displacing coal. Our air quality improved. We met our emissions targets from Kyoto. It's crazy. I mean, a great example is what just happened with McDonald's. There was not a federal mandate to remove nat artificial ingredients from right. burgers and fries. McDonald's was, was responding to the cause and effect of, I mean, I hope that we're part of that tide, of a rising tide of brands like Modern Market that are demonstrating, holy cow, there's consumers want this higher quality food. They're not going to stand and ignore that forever because they're capitalists. They have to make a return for their shareholder. Right. So I think the key for entrepreneurs specifically is your job is to create – put supply in the market that stimulates the demand, and that's, go that's going to move things much more than the government saying X or Y. Right. I mean you know, if, you, if, I invent, if I told you tomorrow that I had invented a battery that was twice as efficient you know, than anything that existed – all cars would be electric in two years. There's, right. there's no regulation that could ever make that happen, right? <laughs> right? And so it's the energy I always feel like should be focused on that sort of thing sure. rather than trying to regulate it because in the end, the regulation becomes just very it's, – it's very burdensome. It's very expensive. And like you said with Kyoto and even the Paris Climate Accords, I don't think the Paris Climate Accord is what's going to solve climate change. I mean, no, I, I, whether I mean, the U.S. signed it or not, I think it's such a complicated problem that it requires the market to respond to it. And, you right. know, you need entrepreneurs like Elon Musk that are willing to, you know, bet everything they own on interesting solutions to the problem that, yeah, maybe Tesla's overvalued. Maybe it's not going to be around in 20 years. Yeah. I don't know. I will say, though, that he single-handedly has forced the hand of automakers around the world to start thinking about alternatives. That's not a regulatory thing as much as it is a market thing. Right. You know, if you're BMW and you lost all your sales for a subset of cars, you're going to say, well, how do we get that customer back? Just yeah. like if you're a restaurant and you see all your, your guests not eating there because of something you're doing, you should evolve and change. Yeah, they're going across the street. Right. What, what are they doing across the street? Like, what, what is so attractive about that? Let's figure out how to either do that uh, – do it better, do it differently, put our own unique spin on it, we'll get there. And that's free market capitalism at the end of the day. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it, it just is. And um, you know, I think I, I hear all the time people that are so down about the state of affairs and where the future is going to be. And I have just the exact opposite view because I know personally so many entrepreneurs who are working on solving really big problems and they're not solving it because there's a government regulation saying they have to solve it. They're solving it because they get up and live in this world every day too, and they want it to be better than it was before. They want it to be better for their kids. You know, I've never met anyone who's like, I want my kids to live in a dirtier, more crime-filled, horrible <laughs> yeah. world than I lived in, right? So I want them to live inside the Hunger Games. <laughs> yeah, I don't think anybody has ever said that. And so in general, I think the, the push for and quest for better – I think works really well in capitalism and, mm. you know, capitalism's ruthless, you know, the strongest survive. And I believe that a lot of these ideas around, you know, a cleaner, healthier planet, those are the strongest ideas. And given enough time, they will be the ones that went out because there'll be people relentlessly pursuing them and innovating and, you know, trying to put them into the world. I think that's a fantastic view of the future. And again, it stands in contrast to a lot of the narrative you're hearing currently. So I applaud you for that narrative. On that note, You've got 29 stores, five states. What is the ultimate vision for Modern Market? Do you have one? I, the ultimate vision is to build as large of a company as we can. Okay. I mean, I, you know, I, I, 
But I mean, you don't have like a. You, there's, there's not a there's, store, there's, there's not no a like count. end zone. No, there is there is no end zone, and nor do I think there should be. I mean, okay. you know, if I said to you there could be 500 modern markets someday, how do I know that there couldn't be 1500? Right? Like <laughs> I, I I don't have a view for that. I look at it as every um, unit that we add, you know, is roughly 500 people a day. We're cha- we're putting better food into them than they probably mm. had otherwise, and we're impacting a local supply chain. We're creating jobs with above market wages. We're doing all the things I want to do, and hopefully we're making a strong return for our shareholders. And so mm. I just want to keep doing that. You know, I, 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 don't, I don't look at it as a – the restaurant industry is just – I mean, it's, gosh, it's a, I think, $800 billion a year industry. So Jeez. you can build a billion-dollar company in the restaurant industry, and nobody even notices you're there. And so <laughs> you know, I don't think there's an end goal. I do think that for me, I'd like us to get large enough that we continue to have do more – we continue to be able to do more and more of what we see in our mind's eye. The larger we get, the higher the quality of food we can serve at the same price. Yeah. Um, and so ideally, as we get larger, our food gets more affordable on a relative basis um, and gets more access for more people because that is the end goal is how do you get this amazing, high-quality, delicious, healthy food into the mouths and bellies of as many people as we can? Wow. Fantastic. All right. Well, You've, uh, you've made me enthused about the future. You've also made me a bit hungry. So uh, let's wrap this up. Now it's time for plugs. Where can people find Modern Market on the web, in real life? Anything you want to plug, go ahead and do it now. Sure. So um, the best way is just modernmarket.com. Um, if you haven't visited us before, um, I, I recommend that you try us um, and uh, try one of our salads or grain bowls. They're, I think, the best in the business. The salads are exceptional. And um, you know we've got a great online ordering system, and uh, we also have delivery via DoorDash through our website. So We'll bring it to you however you want, and uh, hopefully you enjoy it as much as we do. All right, modernmarket.com. Anthony Piliacampo, this was an enormous pleasure. Thanks for taking the time. I know you're a busy guy. So we'll get on with your day and uh, continued success to you, my man. Thanks, John. That wraps up episode 194 of the John of All Trades podcast. Thank you to Anthony Piliacampo, the co-founder and co-CEO of Modern Market. If you haven't checked out one of their restaurants, you really should, especially if you're in one of those five states. Go to modernmarket.com. Find the restaurant nearest you and get some good, healthy food. You'll love it. The John of All Trades podcast is a production of Deft Communications. Check out Deft on the web, D-E-F-T-C-O-M.us. I do trainings, I do content, I do engagement, and I also do podcasts. That's right. I'm producing podcasts now, so hit me up if you want me to produce one for you. Our sponsor is 4Degrees, the number 4, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. Doing an online campaign? This is the place you need to contact Whether it is for a candidate, a service, a product, or anything else, if you need to get the word out online, 4Degrees can do it for you more effectively, more efficiently, and at a better cost than anywhere else you're going to find. So hit up 4Degrees on the web, the number 4, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. The John of All Trades Podcast is a proud member of the Denver Podcast Network. Check us out on the web at denverpodcast.net. We've got a great slate of shows all under our umbrella. You'll find something new. You'll love it. DenverPodcast.net. I'm back here next week. Denver Film Fest coverage starts next week. Get excited for that. DFF41. Stay tuned to the John of All Trades social media channels for any updates. J-O-A-T pod across platforms. Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Pinterest, and Instagram. What else can I tell you? Till I hear you again. Say goodnight, Crazy. That's good, Johnny. The John of All Trades podcast is a part of the Denver Podcast Network. In the shadow of the mountains, we speak.